Heavenly Father, we're rejoicing together because of the revealed Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior and Lord, who has taken refuge by the power of the Spirit's work in the hearts of every believer in this room this morning. This morning as we celebrate this reality that is too vast for our mere human mind to comprehend, we pray that these words that we've sung and your word that is written for us to meditate on and to proclaim to our hearts today would expand our ability to appreciate the glories of salvation. We thank you, Father, that this plan for our hope eternal in Jesus Christ, our High Priest and Lord, was established before this world began. And at the perfect time, you, Heavenly Father, set your King, Jesus Christ, on Zion, your holy hill. You decreed, and it came to pass. And the Lord said to our Lord, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. you. And Jesus, you requested of the Father to grant unto you the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. And you demonstrate your glory and your rule as every one of your enemies is brought into submission under your feet. You break them with rods of iron. You dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Yet for a remnant, for those who call you Lord and Savior, you have ransomed and purchased from every tribe and tongue and nation, Lord, you have begun to gather a people for your great name. And we join those who have gone before in singing your praises today. And we celebrate the fact that as many years as you tarry this earth, that more will be added to that number. Therefore, we join the voice of Scripture in Psalm 2 and cry, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We thank You, Father, that in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have refuge from judgment, safe passage unto glory and the fulfillment of the covenant that was promised, where the purchase, purchase price would be play, paid in the Messiah's blood, that our souls might be ransomed and redeemed. Thank you for these truths. Write them, we pray, through the proclamation of your word on the tables of our hearts today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Praise the Lord. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10 will be our primary text this morning. Today's message is sonship and priesthood. Exploring two aspects of Jesus Christ and His roles in redemption, His offices and His personhood. And how the great author, the great book of Hebrews describes through its authorship to us today how these distinctives and exclusive realities of Christ demonstrate to us the glory of our salvation. 
sonship and priesthood. So stand with me if you would, if you're able, with your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 5, and let's read together the first 10 verses of this chapter. Follow me as I read verse 1. For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning we will celebrate communion together. At the close of this message, the communion table will be open for believers to partake in the fellowship that communion represents and the symbolic imagery of the sacrifice that was paid for our salvation in the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The book of Hebrews is a fitting book to describe to us on every phrase, on every page, the significance and the glory, the beauty, the majestic reality of Jesus Christ in His work and in His person and His essence, and who, not only who He is, but what He has done to save us from our sins. This morning, the concepts of the Sonship of Christ, the only begotten of the Father, and the priesthood of Christ, the high priestly role that He has in redemption, come to the fore as theological themes that help us to see with greater eyes or eyes more widely open to the power and the scope of the gospel. The personhood of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, as God the Son, is in the message of Hebrews revealed to us as inextricably linked. That is, the personhood of Christ as God the Son is inextricably linked to his office as our high priest. This connection is intricately expounded in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5 and the rest of the book does not hold back on the glory, the beauty, and the complexity of our great salvation. In the work of Christ that he accomplished on Calvary and the absolutely phenomenal reality of salvation conceived in the heart of God and communicated between the members of the Trinity that was bound to happen by covenant and decree from eternity past, now taking shape and taking a reality 
and coming to fulfillment in time, both in our hearts now as we experience Christ and have our eyes open to the truth, and in the reality of Christ's finished work on Calvary 2,000 years ago, when at the fullness of time He came and did exactly what Hebrews 5 describes in His work in history, for real, in time, and forever. The author does not hold back on the glory and the beauty and the complexity of salvation. Yet he is afraid that the words that he preaches will fall on stunted and juvenile ears. Ears that say, I don't understand what you're talking about. Oh, that's a concept that's far too vast for me to comprehend. Isn't there some other way that, that, that you could say it that would make it easier, easier for my stunted ears to understand? Instead of taking these glorious truths and somehow stripping them of their beauty to package them for the infant believer, he instead calls in the same context the infantile in understanding to rise to the level that biblical truth demands. Notice with me 5.11. Just after our text this morning, we have this aside. About this, that is these truths, specifically referring to the high priestly order of Christ in the line of Melchizedek, and the rest of what the author means to convey, he says in verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers, their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The author of Hebrews would not have us remain unskilled in the word of righteousness, but he has instead delivered to us a compendium of truth for us to go over and over again so that our discernment, our understanding would be sharpened by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Because it is in the deep and the rich in the foundational realities of the gospel and in the gospel alone that the church will stand in the day of adversity. It is unsustainable to have a church that is perpetually infantile and juvenile and is resistant to the solid food of rich gospel truth and remains in their immaturity only desiring the sugar-coated sweetness of the most basic and cursory principles of truth. These are the elementary doctrines of Christ that the author says we need to lay as a foundation, yes, but then to build upon. And if we do not, there is a warning. There is a warning that we may be shaken in the day of testing and of trial. The audience of this sermon that was preached, this epistle that was delivered by the author of Hebrews, that audience, those readers, were flirting with the former trappings of man-made piety, man-made ideas of righteousness, man-made philosophical constructs, man-made religious ideas. Our author's readers, however, would never have been tempted by those things if they could but comprehend and appreciate, that is, understand and value, 
the effectual exclusivity of Christ and Christianity. That is the powerful and the narrow truth, the exclusive, the only, the unique truth of Christ and Christianity. In our day still, even today, though these words have been available for 2,000 years, for the generations to go over to study, to have their senses trained and exercised to discern both good and evil, our culture today is again, I submit to you, largely stunted in infantile understanding. And thus they miss the sublime heavenliness of truth. It is so easily overlooked. It is so often mistaken. And it is so sinfully mischaracterized in our day. And in spite of all the shades of unbelief that we see in our culture today, what is perhaps most telling in the testimony of the unbeliever is the rarity indeed that the naysayer even understands what he demeans of the Christian faith. You can see this as you tune into your television, watch the talk shows, as you see our progressive quote-unquote society reckoning with new ideas, charging forward in their arrogance into uncharted territory full of embracing our sin and degeneration by larger and larger increments We see discussions of the old Christian order. And we see the critics and the skeptics come out of the woodwork to decry Christianity. To call what the Christians have held, what Christians have held in their orthodoxy as foolishness and ancient myth. But if you listen with your ears open and with your mind tuned to the truth of what Christianity actually is, what you usually find among those naysayers, among the obstinate and the rebellious of culture, is they don't even understand what they oppose. They set up some form of Christianity like a straw man that is devoid of its complexity, its beauty, its magnificence, its glory, its exclusivity, and then they seek to knock it down with the hammer of the wisdom of man or the torches of a postmodern riot, the pitchforks of secular thinking. What is the cure for this? I tell you, there is only one. The cure for this kind of thinking and this kind of unchecked assault on the truth is for us as His church, no matter how small the remnant, to be grounded and secure in our faith. So we are both unshaken and so that we can launch our own salvo against the enemy who would seek to demean the glory of God. And besmirch the righteousness, the truth, the way, the life that is our Savior and Lord and the way of salvation paved with His blood. So this morning it is my prayer and aim that with the Spirit's enlightening power we may grow skilled a little bit more today in the word of righteousness as we consider in our text, Hebrews 5, 1-10, three rich doctrines. Three rich doctrines of our Savior and our salvation. So here's a heading for you. Jesus Christ says, God's Son was beset with weaknesses. Number one. As God's Son, our priest, Jesus Christ, secondly, was begotten of the Father. And thirdly, as God's Son, our high priest, Jesus Christ, learned obedience. He was beset with weaknesses 
He was begotten of the Father, and he learned obedience. I would challenge you to test yourself on your biblical knowledge and the foundations of your own faith by asking this question briefly, a little pop quiz audit for you. What if someone came up to you on the street with your knowledge that you retain right now and asked, asked you, what does it mean? And when the Bible says, your Savior, your Lord, the one that you exalt so highly, was beset with weaknesses. You say that Jesus Christ is the be-all and the end-all. You say He is the moral authority. You say that He is the way of salvation. He is the one door to eternal life. But your Bible also says He was beset with weaknesses. How do you reconcile that contradiction, Christian? Those are the kinds of questions that become more frequent in an age of unbelief. And I'll tell you this morning that Hebrews 5 answers the question. But it takes some study and some careful perusal. It takes some meditation and intellectual commitment to be able to love and articulate, understand enough to answer that question. Or we could be asked these days, point number two, was Jesus ever born in time? What does it mean that your Jesus Christ, you say he was eternal, but your Bible says he was begotten of the Father. If you ever had a knock on your door and he had to uh, and answered it and had the privilege of talking with a Jehovah's Witness and hopefully sharing the gospel, I submit to you that would be the primary point of contention. They believe errantly that Jesus Christ was begotten in time. Yet Christian truth, Hebrews uh, testifying to the same, declares that Jesus Christ is eternally Yahweh in the flesh. Here, yes, in finite time, but He eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity. His sonship has no shelf life, and it had no beginning. Thirdly, if you were asked this question, how, if Jesus Christ is truly God and omniscient and knows everything, like you say, how is it that your Bible says he learned obedience by what he suffered? Or that he was made perfect? Did you know your Bible claims that Jesus Christ was imperfect? After all, he was made perfect. These are the questions that seem difficult on the face of it. And certainly in the context of this passage, those who are only used to sweetened condensed milk and a diet of what tastes good on the tongue but doesn't nourish the core of our spiritual man would be unskilled and therefore unprepared to answer any of these three questions. I pray this morning as a consequence of this message and further consideration that you might be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope within you. And these three objections hypothetically have raised today because Hebrews 5 and the surrounding passages in Hebrews in the greater context of Scripture answers these questions and does so with glory, gloriously in a way that reinforces our faith, not weakens or causes it, calls it into question. So number one, let's, let us consider in more depth as God's Son, Jesus Christ, our High Priest, how it is that He was beset with weaknesses. Under this first and major point, first major point this morning, let's consider three phrases in the text, two phrases and then, and then a third a question. The two phrases are, first of all, the days of his flesh, secondly, dealing gently, and thirdly, dealing with whom. Let's read again uh, verses 6 and 7. It says, as he also says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a quote from Psalm 110 of the unique officeship, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. 
identifying him with that mysterious prior figure, Melchizedek. Notice this first phrase in verse 7. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. What does it mean that Jesus was beset with weakness? Well, I submit to you that it is related to this phrase, in the days of his flesh. This is a phrase that our author chooses again to emphasize the incarnation of Jesus. When God became flesh, Emmanuel was a reality when Jesus was born and he came and dwelt among us. The author of Hebrews has said that this is essential in the scope of salvation and it's essential to our understanding to realize that the work of Calvary depends on God becoming man. The days of his flesh, that word flesh is in the Greek sarx, S-A-R-X, and it refers to the humanity, the physical, material essence, and what it means to be flesh and blood walking around and experiencing this earth as the greater portion of human experience can testify, as all of us can testify. That is to say that our author begins to explore in the incarnation and to declare to us that Christ and his priesthood had to, it was necessary that, he take on human flesh and in so doing, he would be a representative of humanity. He would be a sufficient mediator. He would be the one who would partake in our experience and having passed all the tests thereof, could be a sufficient Savior for our sins. This was essential to his priesthood, that God the Son become the Son of Man. Our author at this point is exploring the continuity and the contrast of Christ's priesthood to the Old Testament priesthood, both of the Aaronic line, Aaron's priesthood, and of the Melchizedek line, that mysterious figure which we'll cover more as later in future weeks, especially as we get to Hebrews chapter 7. But Jesus shared completely, this is the message of what it means that Jesus was beset with weaknesses. Jesus shared completely in our humanity while remaining completely sinless. Jesus was fully human while remaining fully God. Jesus shared completely in our experience and our sarks, our flesh, humanity, physical, material essence while remaining completely sinless. Imagine by way of illustration, um, it's almost political season again. For some people in institutions, it seems like it's always political season. But we'll have uh, primaries coming up in the relatively near future where we will, as a people in this democracy, this so-called democratic republic, vote for representatives, people who re will represent us to go to Washington and, uh, or the State House and speak on our behalf. At least that's the intention, anyway. Many of us lament that that never actually takes place, or at least very seldom, or our views aren't represented. But let me ask you this question. By that illustration, we can understand what is a good representative. A good representative is one from among us. It's one who is familiar with our experience. One who has communicated and listened to us and understands our plight. 
It is one who takes the issues, the reality of our experience that is important to us, and then goes in a representative role and as an intermediary and advocates on our behalf. Earlier in the text of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is described as superior to the angels. To which of the angels has God said, for instance, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You could take that same illustration and plug it into Christ's representative role. You could say, to which of the angels has God ever said, you will represent my people, uh, plead and intercede on behalf of these human sinners for their sake. Would not work. Would not work any more than if we sent an angel to represent us, you know, a write-in campaign for the archangel uh, uh, Michael to, to represent us at the uh, state house. A few of us might, uh, you know, be so, uh, you know, a few loose screws in the head and write, write something in like that, but the rest of us realize that realistically and reasonably that's a, that's a ridiculous thought. Why? Because an angel does not reside here in Cross Lake, Minnesota. An angel is not familiar with the experience that we share. Therefore, his role as representative would be incomplete and insufficient. Not so with Christ. Christ, because he was beset with all of the weaknesses, that is the experience of humanity, with its pains and its trials, its vulnerability and temptation to sin, with its tendency toward decay, even in the general sense of the way that we interact in this life, is a sufficient representative. Jesus Christ is the only representative. You may try to roll your sins onto another scapegoat. You may try to pray to, to beseech another power. But all will fall short. Only Christ, only God's Son, only our High Priest, who was beset with weaknesses and in the days of His flesh became man and dwelt among us is a sufficient Savior and Mediator. Only Him and He alone shared completely in our humanity and and while remaining completely sinless can completely represent us before the holiness, the throne room of God. Secondly, under beset with weaknesses, let us consider another aspect of what it means when Christ shared in humanity in His incarnation and was beset with the frailty of our condition. Uh, at least to some degree, and this comes in the term dealing gently. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. By the way, as an aside, that's a great definition of what is a priest. A priest is one appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. What does he do? The Second phrase continues to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. So you see again that the experience of Christ in his incarnation equips him in his mediatorial role to, in a sense, be compassionate and long-suffering with us. Because of Jesus Christ's unique qualifications, He can deal gently with us. The benefit to us of Christ's humiliation 
as we have discovered in Philippians chapter 2 in the Carmen Christi, where Christ, who was exalted, the pre-incarnate Son of God in all the glory that He deserved, who stooped, who condescended, who came low, who took on flesh, the benefit of that moment in time for us is inestimable in its glory, is incalculable in its love and compassion. Jesus can deal gently with us because He became man and dwelt among us. Jesus, in His humiliation, as we've remarked, experienced the normal body conditions of our plight, tiredness, sickness, vulnerability, sickness to some degree, that is. Just the little bugs and things of life, I'm sure, that He experienced. If there was dust in the air, He would cough. If there was, uh, at the end of the day, he needed a shower. Vulnerability to temptation as we see him suffering for 40 days during his trial in the wilderness. The painful throes and trial of his accusers and the uh, passion that he endured to the point of death on the cross as the thorns pierced his brow and shed physical blood. As lacerations striped his back and tore the flesh with the agonizing, the agonizing pains that every one of us would experience if we were submitted to that capital torture. This happened to our Christ. Why? So that He, brothers and sisters, might deal gently with us. How does He deal? How does He mediate? How does He offer gifts and sacrifices for sins? Well, He offers His flesh and His blood. And then He intercedes, verse 7. In the days again of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. To think of the amazing value the precious blood of Christ represents for us that Christ would offer for you, for me, prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears to deal gently, faithfully, incessantly in His intercessory role before the Father for His own and to think that He was enabled to do so because of His incarnation when He was beset with human weakness is a staggering thought indeed. Turn with me to John chapter 11. The commentators most often in my reading I found correlate the verse we just read in Hebrews 5, 7 with the Garden of Gethsemane experience where Jesus is approaching the cross with the kind of psychological, mental, and soon would be physical anguish beyond anything we could imagine bearing. And this is true and right to parallel this passage with that garden of Gethsemane and the subsequent events and that experience. But I think it's also right to see this text and this concept of Christ beset with weakness dealing gently with us in light of the greater gospel narrative. And this is truly a heartwarming and deeply moving example as Christ interacts with Lazarus the dead man in John's gospel. We read verse 38 through 44. It says, then Jesus moved again. Notice right there those two words, deeply moved again. Then Jesus deeply moved, that is, dealing gently 
Prayers and supplications are about to be offered in this moment. This is an example of the cries and tears of our Savior for the, us in our plight, the deadness of sin. And here is a perfect illustration, an example in this moment in time. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. Notice the supplications and cries that were offered for Lazarus. Notice as we explore the greater context of this text, the further illustration of Christ dealing gently in this situation. Verse 32 reads, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was again deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. The shortest scripture and perhaps one of the most profound, especially in light of our theme this morning, verse 35, two words, Jesus wept. So the disciples said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Do you see Jesus in this context demonstrating how he, as mediator, as God's son and our high priest beset with weakness, is equipped to deal gently with his own? He can cry over this one Lazarus. He can offer prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears. He can issue by the power of His Word a command that He be raised from death to life. And so it is that Jesus Christ, beset with weaknesses, God's Son, the Son of Man, our High Priest and Lord, deals gently with us. He has interceded for you if you are in Him this morning. He has cried out with loud tears and supplications before the throne of Almighty God that you might be delivered from the pangs of sin and judgment, that you might be resurrected from certain hell and damnation unto newness of life, and that the grave clothes of your bondage to sin and the judgment that it deserved might be loosed, might be unbound, that you might praise Him and join with His cries and with His prayers, your own supplications to the Father, having the way into His presence, that is, Almighty God's presence, paved by your intercessor and high priest, 
who is equipped to do so because he was beset with weaknesses. Finally, this morning under this theme of beset with weaknesses, the incarnation of Christ, let us ask this question, to whom does Christ deal? He deals with whom? He deals gently with us, we have said, but in the text there are categories of sinners, if you will, that seem to be identified by two words in the text. And perhaps there's a third category as we continue to read the book of Hebrews. Again, Hebrews 5.2, it says, He can deal gently with who? With whom does He deal? He deals with the ignorant and wayward, since He Himself is beset with weaknesses. If we go back to the Old Covenant and we see some of the lines of history, redemptive history, that are fulfilled and identified in the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> we read of categories of intercession and priestly significance in the life of a believer. You don't need to turn there necessarily, but in Numbers 15, 27, listen as I read. It says, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentional, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns with you. Notice 30, there's going to be another category delineated here, however. It says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, with a high hand that is an obstinance, presumptuous, in fully cognizant, obstinate rebellion, rejecting and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins in this context, it says whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. For because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So perhaps there's two categories to identify related to the sacrificial system of old. There's those who sin unintentionally, and secondly, those who sin as with a high hand. There is perhaps in a uh, chapter over a third category identified in Numbers 16, and this is on the heels of the Korah and company judgment where the earth opened up and swallowed the naysayers who sought to usurp and to deny the authority of God as it was delegated to Moses and his high priest Aaron at the time. God, after swallowing those uh, who had spoken out against Moses and Aaron, now begins to send a plague on those who complain. And not before 14,700 die do we get this experience or do we get this record in the experience of the people of a mediation by another high priest that preceded and I would say in part prefigured Christ in the office of Aaron. Verse 44, number 16, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Verse 46, And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For the wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. Verse 47, so Aaron took it as Moses said. And he ran into the midst of the assembly 
And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put, the incense, put on the incense and made atonement for the people. Verse 48, notice this. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those. That is, in addition to those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. Here is a wayward group of people just getting their just desserts, dropping like flies the plague that was judging them for opposing the word of God. And it was interrupted. It was interrupted by a high priest, Aaron himself, who stood between the dead and the living and offered a sacrifice on their behalf. And so we see the ignorant, the wayward, and the high-handed. Those three categories perhaps show up in Hebrews 5. Jesus Christ, because He is so far superior to Aaron, yet is a high priest like He was, and so much more, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. He can offer that sacrifice for our sins of omission and our sins unintentional. Christ in His broken body and shed blood can intercede for you and me and those areas where we trespass the glory of Christ without even knowing. And He can also rush in between us and death when we deserve plague and our waywardness and save us to the uttermost by His sufficient sacrifice. Yet even in the book of Hebrews, there is yet a category that comes up time and again of high-handedness where the warning is delivered, do not fall into this camp. It says in Hebrews 6.4, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And this is the category most frightening of all. And may it not be said of any of us that we were so obstinate in our rebellion that we spurned the testimony of Christ. Having a knowledge of the truth and denying its power, we became blasphemers, uh, the greatest blasphemers of all, because we spoke out against the very salvation that would save us. Let me tell you, it is most fearful to me those who have grown up in the context of the revealed truth, because they have a responsibility. Each of you, having received a message like this upon your hearing, are responsible for the truth. If I have delivered rightly, by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, the word and gospel of God to you, then if you are to obstinately deny it, to speak out against it, then you fall dangerously close to this camp and category. Only the Holy Spirit ultimately knows of those who are beyond the reach because they are apostate. And having known of the truth, they besmirch it, they spit upon it, and thus are, the most, are in the most fearful situation of all. I pray for a generation today of young people who have grown up in the church and have fast sought reasons to leave their parents' faith, and have spoke out in the various mediums and forums of their rebellion. 
and their ultimate hatred, ultimately their hatred for Christ, that God would be gracious, that they would be found not among the high-handed and the wayward, and that Christ would rush in with his censor like Aaron did, and before they are counted among the 14,700 who justly wrought in hell and the plague of judgment, that they might find opportunity to repent. But I'm telling you from the Word of God, it is no guarantee. God is gracious, and He does deal with us gently. But there is a shelf life to the opportunity to repent. And if we do not see Jesus as a glorious, sufficient Savior, yet He has been presented as such to us, one day there will be appointed to us a judgment day. And those who did not confess Him as their Savior and Lord and trust in His broken body and blood alone to cleanse them of all their waywardness, of all their sins of commission and omission, they are going to be the worst of all. I pray that the Lord would inspire us to fear Him and to cling to Him in these truths. This morning, our second point, second major point, as God's Son and our High Priest, Jesus was begotten of the Father. What does it mean that Jesus was begotten of the Father? Well, this is a sevenfold repeated theme in the text at least, just these ten verses. Notice these following words. First of all, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men. So there is an emphasis in the text that Christ, as well as every high priest that had preceded him, was chosen from among men. There was an active role that a superior authority took on, namely God himself and his sovereignty to appoint to anoint, to commission, to select, to choose one for his purposes. The second reference is immediately here in the text, from among men, uh, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. He is chosen, he is appointed. Verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. We continue with two Old Testament citations. First one from Psalm 2. It says, You are my son, speaking of Christ. This is the voice of God the Father, first person of the Trinity, commissioning his son for a particular call, his messianic role. You are my son today. I have begotten you. Again, it's language authoritatively commissioning to the office of Messiah, of high priest, Jesus Christ. Again, it's in the text, uh, as we read in verse 6, quoted from Psalm 110. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Authoritative commissioning language. We continue uh, those in verse 10, it says, being designated by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. I would submit to you in context that what the author means by saying, by identifying this language, begotten of the Father, is that God had purposed, God the Father had purposed by His decree to appoint at a specific time Christ for His role. This is a sevenfold emphasis just in these ten verses where Christ is seen to and, and declared to have been chosen, appointed, called, begotten, designated, and declared. Now, against the Arian heresies that claim that Jesus was born in time, I mentioned briefly in our modern time, Jehovah's Witnesses are those uh, heretics that fall into this category as well as Mormons. Uh, 
Incidentally, against the Arian heresies, creeds of old would say something like this. They would recognize the truth of what it means that Christ was begotten of the Father. And so in the history of Christian orthodoxy, we've had statements like the the one that follows from the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of gods, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, and so on. What this creed sought to emphasize is the truth that Hebrews 5 boldly declares, that when the Bible states that Jesus Christ is the begotten Son of God, it does not mean that He once did not exist and now exists. It doesn't mean that He was born or created in time. No, instead it means in part that He was appointed, that He was commissioned, that He was chosen, anointed, appointed, called, begotten, designated, declared, and set apart for a particular purpose. In the very testimony of Scripture, this is significant because in God's fullness of time, at the perfect moment, Christ would be born of a virgin, and He, at that time, would take on this role. And in that sense, He was begotten, yes, but it was a plan that had begun at no point in time, but was eternally in the heart and in the mind of the Trinity. And so, even though things appear to us on a linear stage, there is a supernatural and everlasting quality to these realities. We find this in the Old Testament context. Not only is there a sevenfold immediate uh, emphasis in the text of Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, but there are two citations, as we've mentioned, from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Both of these texts, as um, Isaac this morning read one, and I opened in prayer of another, speak of a particular moment in time and an office of Christ. When they say things like, today I have begotten you, or in Psalm 2 verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We've remarked in the triumphal entry the significance of these gospel moments in time, where prophecies of old are fulfilled, where Christ demonstrates His kingly authority in arriving on the same or like beast of burden that a prior son of David had entered into the people upon. And so Christ enters at this specific moment in time, and it is a moment prepared in eternity past of His coronation, where He is demonstrated to the hosannas of the people who cry out, Hosanna to the Son, that the Messiah has arrived on the stage of history. So in that sense, he was begotten to them and their understanding at that moment when they cried out, Blessed be the Son of David. This is a prophet, Jesus of Galilee. And then Jesus was begotten on the cross as it were in that moment in time when he took on the sins of his people and was crucified for us. There was a a, a fixed moment at that where the reality of God's decree came to pass and for all time is the hinge of history where he, he was designated, declared, appointed, and fulfilling that particular role. As we see in the context of the Old Testament priestly order and references like Numbers 16 at the beginning of the chapter and also uh, Numbers 9 verse 4 and 7 verses 1 through 10, 
there is uh, signs that attend those who are appointed, designated, called, commissioned, and delegated a particular priestly office. And in the case of Aaron himself, there was a judgment on the dissenters. We mentioned that in the destruction of Korah and company, and also the plague that struck the people. And there was also miraculous affirmation. Aaron had a rod that budded. And so by that miraculous affirmation, and by the judgment on those who would dissent, it was a testimony to the people that God had begotten, if you will, Aaron as the high priest at that time. And so it is with Jesus Christ our Lord. In the New Testament context, there is judgment on the dissenters. Those who ultimately reject the testimony of Christ will find themselves in eternal conscious torment. Those who accept His miraculous affirmation of resurrection from the dead and the attestation to His glory and His uh, uh, office as high priest and Messiah and the fact that He was Yahweh in the flesh with all His miracles through the gospel, they are the ones who receive Him as their high priest and recognize that He is the begotten Son of the Father, that is, the appointed high priest for their salvation. In the New Testament context, as we continue to see this idea unfold, I'll turn you over to one cross-reference in the book of Acts. And one of the first great sermons that was preached, the first wave of Christianity, never mind the skepticism and naysayers who say that Christianity adopted higher and higher ideals and more glorious views of Christ, such is not the case. The church has always had to fight to retain the purity and glory of the gospel. She is prone to decay in our natural state of fallen conditions. Yet when we get back to the core message, we return to truths like this in Acts 13. Listen to the glorious, powerful, and attesting, corroborating evidence in this sermon delivered by Paul that uh, we receive along the line, or in Along, alongside the testimony in Hebrews, Acts 13, 32, it says, And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this has fulfilled to us, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You'll notice again, this psalm is cited. Again, Psalm 2, 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So what does it mean again that Christ was begotten? Well, this is Paul's explanation, verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That is to say that Paul associates the truth that Christ is begotten of the Father with the fact that he was raised from the dead. This is the New Testament context of what this means. This language fulfilled to us. Those three words are a great definition of begotten. What does it mean that Christ was begotten? It means that Christ was fulfilled to us. We could expand that a bit by saying that in time there would be an inaugural occasion where prior promise and eternal decree would be fulfilled in history by significant and miraculous events. Christ was begotten. He was fulfilled to us. That is, there was at His crucifixion, at His resurrection, and His incarnation, an inaugural occasion 
where prior promise and eternal decree were fulfilled in history. They were atten- and that fulfillment was attended by significant and miraculous events. Christ was begotten of the Father. Thirdly, this morning, God's Son, Jesus Christ, and our High Priest learned obedience. This is a difficult concept on the face of it, to be sure. But let us briefly touch upon this this morning because it will strengthen, deepen, and embolden our witness and our understanding. Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So here it seems that we have Christ learning something, and it seems that we have Him being perfected. That is difficult for us to reconcile when we know that God, and by extension we would assume God in the flesh would learn nothing, but would know all things, and would be perfect in and of Himself, would not need to be sanctified. But again, remember, Christ was beset with weakness. There is a mystery here of His incarnation. And so as touching His humanity, Christ did learn obedience in this sense. I think P.E. Hughes, a good commentator on Hebrews, best describes it in this summary statement, or does a good job of describing it in this summary statement. Not that you can improve upon the Word of God, but this was helpful for me to understand it. His perseverance and the performance of the Father's will. What is the obedience of Christ? And what does it mean that Christ learned obedience? Well, the obedience of Christ was His, that is Jesus' perseverance in the performance of the Father's will. He learned obedience in this sense when He endured suffering, when He endured temptation, when He fulfilled His role as the God-man and our intercessor. Romans 5 Verse 19 talks about the importance of Christ's obedience and it's directly related to the reality and the significance and I would say the, the uh, sophistication of salvation itself. Romans uh, chapter 9, just reading briefly this cross-reference here. Uh, Romans 9, or is it Romans 6? Lost my, oh, I'm sorry, Romans 5, thank you. Romans 5 verse 19 speaks of the first and the second Adam. It says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Christ and His fulfillment of the Father's will was the second Adam who did what Adam did not do and therefore could represent us. Where Adam sinned in disobedience, Christ submitted to the same testing and trials, and even more so, obeyed. And so by one man, that is Christ's obedience, the many, that is all who are in Him, all who are associated in salvation and regeneration with Christ, will be made righteous. So in this sense, Christ persevered in the performance of the Father's will. How is it, or how could it be said, or in one sense, What sense was Christ made perfect? Well, again, if we think along the lines of the first and the second Adam, the second Adam's probation or testing period was unto something 
unto glorification. Again, he uses insightful, he says, with a pure human nature, he that is Christ, should succeed where Adam had failed. His sufferings both tested and victoriously endured. Attested his perfection, uh, free from failure and defeat. Again, with a pure human nature, he should succeed where Adam had failed his sufferings. Uh, his sufferings both tested and victorious endured, attested his perfection and free, to, free from failure and defeat. Again, this being made perfect is along the same lines of this language of learning obedience. It's the perseverance and the performance of the Father's will. A great reference, cross-reference for this briefly is in Matthew chapter 3, where John the Baptist at first refuses to baptize Jesus Christ, but there's a reason offered that he, would, that he should do so. It says in John 3, of, I'm sorry, Matthew 3, 13, Then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is, for, uh, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That is, to make the Father's will complete, or perhaps to learn obedience, or to make the, His salvific calling perfect. When He consent, Then He consented. And when Jesus was baptized, verse 16, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And you notice the heavenly attestation. You could just as easily say, this is my begotten Son with whom I am well pleased. Or this is my Son begotten to you. This is my chosen, appointed, called, designated, declared. And this is my Son who is fulfilling all righteousness, who is satisfying the righteous demands of the covenant so that you might be saved. Finally, this morning, under obedience, there's a call that the author leaves us with in our text in Hebrews to obey. We are called to obey. The obedience of Christ is expounded, but then there is an application for us as well in the text. Again, in Hebrews chapter 5, it says in verse 9, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Just briefly and in closing on this point, I'd like to give you an illustration. I don't know if some of you heard this interaction recently, but I'm sure virtually all of you have heard that Donald Trump is running for the Republican Party nomination. A brief chuckle might um, come to mind as you consider this, you know, bombastic pop figure, pop culture figure, really, and his um, fast and loose tongue in the way that he likes to make his points and how it is quite entertaining as he takes the stage as one who seems to fear no man and just charge forward with absolute certainty. Right or wrong, Donald Trump will let you know exactly what he thinks, will he not? Well, Donald Trump was asked a question recently, and he did not answer it with certainty. And he did not fight back. He was indeed staggered at this question. 
what was the question? Mr. Trump, and the moderator at a family's values forum or something, Fox News moderator, asked him, he said, Mr. Trump, have you ever personally asked the Lord for forgiveness? What an amazing question. That man who can stare down a billionaire, who doesn't fear governments, who will sooner bowl you over than think twice in his business dealings. I mean, that's just my superficial judge of his character, but certainly he is not shy about making his presence known. That man was staggered by that question. He stuttered, he stammered, and he could not answer with certainty. He said, I guess I try to live my life so that I don't need forgiveness. I try not to make mistakes so I don't have to have things to repair and, in short, to repent of. If that's a representation of where that man's heart lies, he does not know Jesus Christ. You cannot know Jesus Christ and have that attitude because you fall eternally, immeasurably short of the standard of righteousness. And the call to obey Christ is not a call to try not to have anything to repent of. But instead, it is a submission to Jesus Christ and His priestly role as your mediator and Savior. Ultimately, the interpretation in context of Hebrews 5, verse 9, of all who obey Him is that is to say all who submit to Him as their high priest. You see, in the Old Covenant, you could have lived by a high priest. Maybe you really enjoyed His company. Maybe you were good friends with him and went fishing and drew nets in the Sea of Galilee on the weekends. Maybe you had him over for dinner from time to time and your mind was full of sentimental thoughts about the priest who lived next door. You might have considered him your best friend. But if you never gave to him that turtle dove and said, Please, I have committed sins. Take this to the temple and intercede on my behalf. If you never offered him that ram and said, I have sins of waywardness and sins of omission and sins I have committed in ignorance. If you never gave him that sacrifice and said, intercede for me, you're not submitting to him as your high priest. You might love the idea of Jesus. You might call him your best friend. You might be filled with warm, sentimental thoughts at he, at who he is, his, even his personality, and the fact that he is compassionate and does deal gently. But if you do not trust Jesus to present to God the Father the sacrifice for your sins, for your forgiveness, you are not obeying him. And you are, not calling him, you are calling him Lord in one sense, but not submitting to him as Yahweh, Adonai, high priest. Not at all. And in this sense... The author of Hebrews says, Christ is our high priest. And you obey Christ when you submit to him as such. And then fruit of that submission is a life of increasing measurable sanctification. Where a glorious fruit, in fact, is that we do obey him, practically speaking. And hopefully after uh, submitting to him, by God's grace, we have in one sense, yes, less to repent of. But we must ask him or forgiveness, or we will die in our sins and find no forgiveness at all. In transition this morning, what is represented before us in these elements is the sacrifice 
for our sin. What is represented in the broken bread and in this cup is the sacrifice that our high priest offered when he bore our sins and transgressions, interceded on our behalf, and purchased our eternal life. This morning, we remember and proclaim that event. This morning, we confess our dependency on it. And this morning, I pray that all who partake in the communion, in communion today, the Lord's table, do so in a heart of submission to Jesus Christ as your high priest. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Jesus Christ, we are so thankful for the sufficient final provision and sacrifice of shed blood and the broken body of your own humanity that was offered for our salvation. I pray that all who partake in the Lord's Supper this morning in this meal and feast of communion would realize that without that, we are lost, dead, damn-worthy, hell-bent, and totally without hope, without God, in a world that will kill us. But with you, we have sufficient Savior, assurance of salvation, propitiation, that is wrath-absorbing, mediation, Lord, for our sins. We are so thankful. Help us to take communion in the right heart and spirit today as we remember the message of Hebrews. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.